Welcome to Lee Coast School's EdCast number 28 with Dr. Karen Landers. August is National Immunization Awareness Month, so we spoke with Dr. Landers because she is the Assistant State Health Officer for the Alabama Department of Public Health, and she is generally the person who is quoted in any news story about communicable diseases in Alabama. She tells us about her fascinating career journey, why vaccines are one of the greatest scientific discoveries of all time, and dispels many myths about vaccines. So after listening to this, if you have any questions, comments, complaints, criticisms, compliments, colloquialisms, conundrums, or concerns, you can find us on the web at www.lee.k12.al.us forward slash edcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at schools or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash schools. And we have our own icon on the Lee County app, which you can find in Google Play and whatever Apple has now. And finally, you can email us at edcast at lee.k12.al.us. I want to continue giving a shout-out to my former co-host and consistent producer, Mr. Kyle Christian. Thanks, as always, bud, for making me sound smarter than I am. So without further ado, Alon Z. To begin, um, let's just talk a little bit about yourself. Let's um, get you to introduce yourself. Um, how did you get to be at the Department of Public Health? And just, you know, give us a little bit of your CV. Okay. I'm Dr. Karen Landers with the Alabama Department of Public Health. My specialty is pediatrics. I am a career public health physician. I completed my residency training at the University of Tennessee after graduating from medical school from the University of Alabama School of Medicine in 1977. Completed my residency in 1980. Practiced pediatrics in the private sector for two years and came to the Alabama Department of Public Health in 1982. So again, I am a career public health physician with the Alabama Department of Public Health. My range of expertise includes not only general pediatrics, but I have also worked in tuberculosis control, vaccine preventable diseases, general infectious diseases and outbreaks, have a special interest in tuberculosis control and vaccine preventable diseases. I also have an interest in uh, the uh, emergency preparedness for children. I am currently the American Academy of Pediatrics a representative for the state of Alabama regarding pediatric emergency preparedness. Last year, I deployed to the Marshall Islands with the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization to work on the TB-free Majuro project with specific contributions toward pediatric tuberculosis in that area of the world. Wow. That is quite the, um, the career of public service you've got. Well, when you've been doing it for 42 years, you've had an opportunity to do a lot of things. Well, it is increasingly rare to find someone who's been who's dedicated their lives to public service like you have so that is um is very impressive thank you very much and i think we're very lucky to uh, have someone with your sorts of dedication working on behalf of the people of alabama you mentioned the marshall islands what you were uh is that to help eradicate tb in the marshall islands is that what that project was Yes, actually, this was a project of the Centers for Disease Control and also the World Health Organization and other 
organizations committed to the reduction of tuberculosis in other parts of the world. And, of course, that particular project, I worked with a team of physicians, nurses, epidemiologists, and disease intervention specialists actually seeing patients there in the Marshall Islands, speaking with those patients, uh, reading chest x-rays, interpreting laboratory results, and either prescribing treatment for tuberculous disease or preventive treatment for TB infection. So it was a very large project. We actually, uh, the final numbers, we screened almost 20,000 people uh, in a population of 26,000 people. So it was quite an undertaking. The uh, effort actually started in June of uh, 2018 and ran through November 2018, basically augmenting what the Republic of the Marshall Islands is doing in its public health service, really augmenting that with other physicians, nurses, and health care providers from throughout the United States to support the efforts of this country to, uh, again, eradicate tuberculosis in their population. That's fantastic. Well, now, thank you. The Marshall Islands, that's in the South Pacific, is that right? Yes, it is. Um, actually, uh, the Marshall Islands is the Republic of the Marshall Islands. There are a number of islands grouped together. Um, Majuro is uh, the largest uh, in terms of population. There's also an island, Eba, uh, which had a project prior to this one last year on TB eradication. I believe the population of those islands is somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 or so thousand. So it's not a, a huge part of the world, but it's a very important part of the world and a very important partner with the United States in terms of lots of different activities. So, again, a very gracious group of people to work with and a very committed uh, governmental organization with its public health department. That sounds really cool. So let's just talk about some basics. We're talking to you for our August episode, which August is National Immunization Awareness Month. We're talking to you today for just some information on vaccines, immunizations, and try and helpfully help dispel some, some myths that have inexplicably cropped up in recent decade or so. Um, so just to get started, let's, let's talk a little bit about what are vaccines and, and what exactly is it that they do? Well, of course, vaccines are really one of the most important public health advances of the 20th century. In fact, it would be in the top 10 public health advances in the last century, which markedly reduced disease and improved morbidity and mortality among the population really allowed a lot of people to live who would not have lived had they not had uh, these life-saving vaccines. So again, for example, let's talk about a vaccine that a lot of people are very familiar with, and that's the tetanus vaccine. If you think about uh, tetanus, Clostridium tetani, being uh, ubiquitous in the soil, well, you know, we know that if persons are not vaccinated for tetanus, then they are very likely to contract um, tetanus disease, which is very, very serious and, and certainly very likely to be fatal. 
So this made a, a huge difference, um, even in if you think about World War II, made a huge difference in the population where, you know, persons would be wounded on a battlefield, for example, and were able to receive tetanus vaccine along with other medical care and obviously reduce the risk of their developing tetanus disease. So I think, you know, that's extremely important. But obviously, you know, post-World War II, we're talking about continued advances in vaccine and, of course, diphtheria vaccine, uh, pertussis vaccine or whooping cough vaccine, so that now we basically give uh, the tetanus vaccine as, you know, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis vaccine, again, depending on the formulation and the, and the age of the patient. So I think that's an extremely important and life-saving advance. I mean, we certainly just don't see diseases such as tetanus or diphtheria anymore in the United States as a result of people being vaccinated. Very, very, very rare to see that. Now, whooping cough, again, the whooping cough vaccine that was used for a number of years was actually what was called whole cell, and that's W-H-O-L-E, or whole cell vaccine. And, of course, uh, this vaccine, while it was a very good vaccine, uh, was uh, accompanied by some uncomfortable side effects in some children, such as fever, and in very, very, very rare instances of children might have a febrile seizure after taking this vaccine. But, again, a very very unusual and very rare uh, condition after that. Um, so a vaccine called acellular pertussis was developed, and again, just an improvement on our ability to fight pertussis as a result of the acellular vaccine. So again, just talking about one vaccine product now that we have, which is uh, DTAP in younger children or TDAP uh, in person seven years of age and above, and one thing that's important about whooping cough is that we're seeing an increase in whooping cough in the United States. You know, part of that is persons not being vaccinated. Another part of that is that the acellular vaccine probably does not confer as long an immunity process as the whole cell pertussis did. Uh, but also being aware that it's very important for adults to have received an acellular pertussis vaccine, specifically if they're going to be around young children. And, of course, now the recommendation for pregnant women to receive the acellular pertussis vaccine during each pregnancy. And, again, that's given as the, the Tdap. So I think it, that's a, a way for us to combat a disease like whooping cough, which is uh, very significant and very severe in infants and children specifically under one year of age. So again, just, just one vaccine product that we're talking about here that has had significant effect on the population. Refresh my memory. From what I will remember is that a vaccine is essentially either introducing a dead form of whatever we're vaccinating against um, or like with smallpox was cowpox that would help build the immunity if you had cowpox you had a, a, an immunity to smallpox if, if if i'm remembering my history on that correctly is that what we're essentially talking about with the vaccines these days or is it is it something slightly different now well i think a way to explain it uh for the general public is really 
categorize vaccines, if you will, into uh, the inactivated vaccines or what I call the killed vaccines, of, such as the, uh, you know, the, the vaccines like I was just speaking about, the tetanus, pertussis, diphtheria, or again, acellular pertussis. So we're really talking about an inactivated vaccine. And then there are other vaccines that are, are what's called live attenuated vaccines. And by that, I mean there, there is a live virus that basically the infectious part of it, if you will, or the part that actually causes disease has been attenuated or modified. So if we talk about, you know, what I call, again, inactivated or killed vaccines, uh, I, I like to use that term, such as the, uh, the uh, DTAP or the TDAP, uh, then we can also speak about uh, the, some of the, uh, the live attenuated vaccines, such as uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine being, you know, one of those very important vaccines as well as, as the varicella vaccine. The MMR vaccine or measles, mumps, rubella is actually given as a combination vaccine. There is, in the United States, no such thing as single-dose mumps, single-dose measles, and single-dose rubella. Again, it's given as a, a vaccine combination. And then, of course, there is a vaccine where the varicella component can be added in with the MMR again, depending on age and indication of the child. So that's probably the easiest way to talk about it in terms of categories. Now, in terms of the smallpox vaccine, which we do not give to persons other than in the event of a, of a bioweapons attack, which certainly we hope would never happen, we do have that vaccine available through our strategic national stockpile with the CDC. We hope we never have to use it. But again, some improvements on that vaccine, but still a vaccine that, that could be categorized uh, as we have talked about. So a way to induce the body to develop immunity to these diseases without actually having these diseases to occur and the risk of, of more severe illness or death as a result of the illness as opposed to protecting with the vaccine so people won't become sick and die. So some people are maybe confused about or not 100% sure on things. And so one question that some people have is, will a child's immune system be weaker if they are, quote-unquote, relying on a vaccine? Absolutely not. In fact, there is so much data, so much scientific data on the response of the immune system to multiple vaccine products, and especially in younger children who actually respond exceedingly well to multiple vaccine products. And this is why we're able to give more than one vaccine at a time in childhood. I mean, the earlier uh, the child is uh, able to receive the vaccine and their immune system is primed uh, with that vaccine, the better to develop immunity. Again, there are certain ages at which vaccines are given, and this is based upon a lot of research and a lot of science. So again, uh, I've heard many people discuss this uh, about the vaccine and the immune system, but again, that's, that's not scientifically based. It's extremely important that we vaccinate as early as that vaccine is recommended in order to receive the best response of the immune system. That, make, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, I know some people 
they refuse to get the flu vaccine every year because oh, it just I wind up getting sick anyway. They get a cold or they they get something they blame on the on the flu vaccine. Um, can the vaccine give someone the disease that it is intended to prevent? Okay, well, again, the flu vaccine gets a lot of bad press, and we have to remember there's not just one type of influenza circulating every year. Uh, there are multiple uh, influenza viruses, as well as reminding that other respiratory viruses that are similar to influenza in terms of, of signs and symptoms can cause illness. But the influenza vaccine that we are giving, the inactivated influenza vaccine, cannot cause influenza. Now, there is a vaccine that was on the market and has come back on the market, and that is the live attenuated nasal influenza vaccine or nasal spray vaccine. And this virus, while it is live and attenuated, does not cause influenza. Uh, it was off the market for a couple of years due to uh, a decrease in effectiveness of the vaccine as shown in some studies. And I think it's important to realize that, that just there, by looking at the effectiveness of the vaccine, it was able to be rapidly determined that that vaccine was not effective during uh, a flu season, so it actually was taken off the market and reformulated and has come back on the market for subsequent flu seasons or, uh, again, the live attenuated nasal spray vaccine. Now, not everyone can take that vaccine, and certainly there are certain age groups uh, that can take it and certain medical conditions that cannot take the live attenuated. But again, to answer your question, influenza vaccine does not cause influenza. And I think that the influenza vaccine continues to be an extremely important preventive method for influenza. We know that in a, in a very good influenza season, the match to the three or four viruses that are actually in the formulation can vary. And sometimes we can have an effectiveness rate that's far less than 50%. But in, in good years, if we have a vaccine match between 50 and 60%, well, that's great. Uh, but stop and think about it this way. That much protection is better than no protection at all. Mm -hmm. And by having the influenza vaccine widely used, uh, we're able to protect people that don't have as strong an immune system. For example, people with chronic disease, uh, people with uh, uh, you know, a problem that allows their immunity to be less active, such as immunosuppressive illnesses. So we think it's extremely important for everyone who's eligible for the influenza vaccine, which we give six months and older, and also given pregnant women, uh, to get the influenza vaccine early in the fall to protect yourself against influenza viruses. Tell me if I'm wrong. This is what I've heard, is that a lot of times with the, um, the influenza vaccine, what we're what is happening is that we're trying to that the the strains sort of start in China somewhere or in Asia somewhere and sort of work the way around the world and so who are making those vaccines are guessing which strains are going to make it over here is that just hokum or is that anywhere anywhere close to the truth well we have to look at what happened in a previous vaccine year we know that influenza circulates year round in the world and that um, Actually, an influenza season in one part of the world is not an influenza season here in the United States, which, you know, we, we tend to see influenza more from the fall until the late winter. However, remembering that 
influenza viruses cir circulate year-round. They don't just, uh, you know, go into hibernation. So we do base currently the influenza vaccine uh, that we have on uh, the previous year's uh, vaccination, or excuse me, the previous year's viruses in other parts of the world as well as here in the United States. And again, it's a, it, it is somewhat of a guess, uh, but that's the technology that we have at the moment is basing this on previous year's experience in order to try to target the most likely uh, influenza viruses that are circulating. Uh, one, more, one more flu vaccine um, question, and then I'm going to move on to some other stuff. But uh, something that just always I'm always curious about, why do I get asked if I'm allergic to eggs when I go get my flu vaccine? Well, again, they're in extremely rare, and it is extremely rare, I stress, instances where people might have true anaphylaxis or true severe allergic reaction to eggs. They might not be able to tolerate certain influenza vaccines. But the science has really advanced on that so that while a person is asked that question, uh, there are some products that people can actually take. Uh, and then there are other questions that need to be asked to discern whether or not a person's reaction to eggs would be a true anaphylactic reaction or uh, just a food intolerance. And, for example, if uh, people say, well, I'm allergic to eggs, but I can eat eggs, then they're not allergic to <laughs> the flu bag. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious to me. Okay. Now, I've, had that, I've had that question asked, but, you know, I think we have to remember with patients that, if, uh, if they don't know something and they ask the question, then it's a very good question. Oh, we certainly ask questions regardless uh, of whether they think it might not be a question that is scientifically sound. Again, if they don't ask and we don't uh, answer them, then we're really not serving the patient very well. Exactly. Um, all right. So, you know, this podcast is the, po the official podcast of, of Lee County Schools, and so I want to talk a little bit about school-related stuff. Um, so if if I'm a parent and I'm saying, okay, well, if all the other kids in school are immunized, well then, or, or if most of the kids in my kid's school are immunized, does it matter if some of the, if a few of the kids skip vaccinations? Why would it, why, why would it be important that all, every single one of them be immunized? Well, I think we have to look at that in terms of your own personal health. Uh, um, most people don't just go to school and go home and they go to other places. They go to, uh, you know, to the stores or to church or to other events, uh, other social gatherings, etc. So again, their exposure to illness is not limited to the school population. They travel to other parts of the United States and other parts of the world. So again, we have to look at it as your own health and your own protection of your own health. First of all, really cannot rely on someone else taking, if you're ill, taking a medication, and just because, you know, they're ill taking the medication, that's not going to help you. So we have to look at the vaccine in terms of a personal health measure, uh, just like we would any uh, treatment or prevention measure. Uh, so I think that's one thing that's important. Another thing that is important is that being vaccinated for certain illnesses that, for example, you can easily transmit from one person to the next measles, again, being one, uh, we would certainly want to ensure that not only were you vaccinated to prevent your developing that disease, but what about people around you 
that had a severe immunosuppressive condition, let's say, for example, a child that uh, had a, a bone marrow transplant or some uh, Ill, you know, illness of that nature, or a child that was not old enough to be vaccinated for measles yet. Let's say, for example, a, an infant who was close to a year of age. By that time, the mother's immunity has really pretty much gone away. That's why we give the MMR at one year of age. But maybe that child is not quite old enough to have taken the MMR. Uh, that child is exposed to measles. When that child has a 90-plus percent chance of developing the disease. So, again, not only is it incumbent upon us to protect our own health, but to protect the health of other people who might be around us, you know, or, or get an illness from us because we weren't vaccinated. There are other people who will say, well, if a disease has been eliminated or hasn't been seen in my community or the country, um, then why should the kids continue to be immunized? Well, we have to remember that just because a disease has been eliminated in a certain area, a certain state, doesn't mean that that disease cannot come back. And we have the classic example of that in measles. Measles was largely eliminated from the United States. And by that, I mean that persons who were living and working in the United States were not contracting measles within the United States. Any cases were imported from another part of the world, and there's still a lot of measles throughout the world. Uh, so again, uh, while that disease was thought to be eliminated, we just have to look no further than the weekly statistics that we see on increases were well over a thousand cases of measles now in the United States. So that just because something has been eliminated doesn't mean that it cannot come back and you know we're we're a plane right away as uh, one of my esteemed colleagues likes to say from many vaccine preventable diseases and so it's incumbent upon us to protect our own health and protect the health of our children in order to reduce these severe diseases you know I wish it were the case that we continue to have measles eliminated but with this resurgence that we're having now, I, I believe that it's uh, going to continue and we will have some cases in Alabama. Fortunately, we have not because we have a very highly vaccinated state, but we must keep those vaccine rates well above in order to prevent more cases in Alabama. Another argument would be if, you know, in today's society where kids, uh, if the kid is healthy and active and eating well, um, you know, with adequate levels of hygiene and sanitation and clear, clean water, we don't need vaccines. Um, how, 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 do we, how do we combat that? How do we respond to that? Yeah. Well, I think that's where we continue as physicians, as pediatricians, family physicians, and other health care providers, nurses, pharmacists, uh, health educators. I think that's where we have to remind people that even though these diseases have not been seen in a community, they're still out there and they can still resurge. So it's fortunate that people have better uh, nutrition now and, and clean water and uh, sanitation. It's very fortunate that we have these great advantages in our country. But again, while those are all very, very good, that will not prevent these illnesses, again, if a person is exposed to these illnesses. 
Now, again, I, I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, I had measles and I did fine. Well, I actually had measles and did fine, too, because I was I was born in an era when measles was very, very common. But let, let me say that as an older physician myself, I remember my brother being hospitalized with measles pneumonia when uh, he was a young child in, in the early 50s. And I remember that well enough to remember that my mother and father were terrified and it was far from a situation where, okay, he's going to be fine and he's going to recover. He was very, very sick. Fortunately, he did recover. But as a young child, that is one of my memories of measles, was having my brother hospitalized and having and remembering my mother being extremely anxious and upset, as well as my father, that my brother was not doing well. So, again, very fortunate, you know, very, very fortunate that, that he survived that very severe illness. Uh, but it certainly can be that way in, in anyone. So it's better to reduce the risk of having this illness than it is to run the risk of the severe complications and potential mortality from this virus. Right. Well, you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, the flu is not that big of a deal. It's just getting sick. I'm like, hey, um, tell the people in 1918 that <laughs> when, when more people, almost more people were killed by the flu than there were by the war. Um, right. Well, and I think so. another, it brings it up to a more recent statistic in uh, the early part of, uh, of the flu season, not, not in 2019, but in 2018, the early part of the flu season here in Alabama, uh, we sustained a couple of pediatric deaths. And uh, in one of those uh, instances, very tragically, there was no underlying medical condition for that child. So uh, 2018 was a particularly significant flu illness season for pediatrics. So I think we still have to remember that, you know, if we look at the statistics and we see the smaller numbers, we might be comforted. But if that statistic is you, that's not comforting at all. If that's your loved one, you know, that's not comforting at all. And as a physician myself, again, have been doing this for many years, you know, I have seen severe complications and even been uh, made aware of deaths of children from influenza disease, children who had no underlying health problem. And to me, that's always a tragedy when we lose a person who was otherwise healthy and potentially could have been helped by a life-saving vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, do vaccines provide better immunity than natural infections? And so what, what brings me to this question is um, I'll hear parents of young children and they'll like if one of the kids in their group gets smallpox, or not smallpox, whew, sorry, chickenpox, um, they'll want to have what's called. I, I hear these things called chickenpox parties. Well, they bring all the other kids and they'll all catch chickenpox together. Um, first of all, is that even a good idea? And second of all, is it a false question to ask about quote unquote better immunity, vaccines, or natural infections? Well, and again, we have to remember that vaccines vary in the effectiveness or the efficacy, if you will, depending on the vaccine product. You know, for example, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, you put that all together. Now, the measles component is 
well over 97% effective in inducing immunity. Now, if you look at the mumps component of MMR, it may only be 85 to 90% effective in preventing disease. It's still pretty good, but it's not as effective as the measles component of the vaccine. That's just the nature of vaccines. The influenza vaccine is another example. As I said, in a good year, we would like to see 50% or so effectiveness still better than having the disease. But getting back to illness versus natural immunity, certainly we can say that the vaccine is as effective as natural immunity. And by taking the vaccine, we avoid the complications that can occur with any of these other diseases. For example, it's better to be vaccinated against measles than it is to run the risk of measles encephalitis. Again, very rare, but it does happen. And, you know, let's talk about chicken pox for a minute. Uh, you know, again, I'm old enough to have seen all of these diseases uh, in children, with the exception of diphtheria, which was largely eradicated uh, in the United States in the middle of the, of the uh, previous century, but I'm old enough to have seen all of these diseases otherwise. And uh, chicken pox, again, a good example, while many children have a, a mild illness, uh, with chicken pox, there are people that develop chicken pox and develop a disease uh, such sort of like an encephalitis. In addition, there can be extremely severe uh, skin infections. When I was a very young doctor, I saw a, a secondary skin infection uh, in a child who had chicken pox, a really devastatingly ill child that wound up having some skin grafts as a result of a severe skin infection with chicken pox. Again, that's very rare, mm -hmm. but it does happen. Mm -hmm. But again, looking at the chicken pox parties, you know, what I have seen, ironically, is, uh, you know, sometimes when we see a kid with chicken pox and then the brother or sister gets chicken pox, they actually have a worse case because, uh, you know, the virus passing through that person, it seems like there's a little more virulence, at least in, in my practice of this. So it's still better to avoid uh, the disease than it is to develop the disease if we possibly, you know, can uh, vaccinate against this disease. Let's do it rather than exposing a child and running the risk of complications. Mm -hmm. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but smallpox, other than outside of a laboratory, it's otherwise been eradicated from the planet. Is that correct? That is correct. In the late 1970s, and again, anyone who might be interested in the history can look up a physician who's named D.A. Henderson, you know, one of the uh, giants of medicine and one of the physicians that's very closely associated with the eradication of smallpox uh, in the world. So again, fortunately, uh, not a virus that we would see outside of a laboratory setting or a very unlikely but potential risk of this being used as a bioweapon. Now, I might mention, uh, interestingly enough, uh, actually through my career I've been very fortunate to do uh, multiple episodes of training with Fort Detrick, Maryland and Aberdeen Proving Ground, uh, which are the United States uh, facilities for infectious disease as well as chemical weapons. So I've done some training both at Dietrich and at Aberdeen uh, with this particular topic, with the topic of, 
of bioweapons. So again, something that we do have training here in the United States. We have a lot of information through the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, as well as other facilities such as the National Ebola Training Center, uh, which is located in Nebraska, but also has training throughout the United States, including Emory. And I've had some training, again, with some of these facilities. So, again, very fortunate that throughout the world this has been eradicated, and it was eradicated as a result of the vaccine. But we need to continue to study this. We need to continue to be aware of this, and we need to continue to avail ourselves of, of training just so that in the unlikely event we would be ready for this. But, again, a very significant example of a virus being essentially eliminated from the planet. So what is preventing us from being able to eradicate other diseases in a similar fashion? Well, I think part of it is, part of it is the virus. And then we also have to remember that, you know, we're also talking about some of these conditions or, you know, bacterial illnesses. You know, for example, the, the tetanus is a bacteria. And, again, you know, the best we're going to be able to do because uh, the, this uh, Clostridium tetani can be ubiquitous in the soil is to keep people vaccinated uh, against that. The same thing with the diphtheria. You know, this is a bacteria, so again, we have the best we can do is to to vaccinate uh, against this bacteria. Um, you know, what will largely eradicate these illnesses uh, that we are currently dealing with is continued high rates of vaccination uh, throughout our country, as well as other parts of the world. Again do not have the resources that we have in the United States, and that's why, you know, some parts of the world don't. Um, and so that's why we need to continue our global efforts to reduce vaccine-preventable diseases. So the, let, let's talk about the this quote-unquote anti-vax movement. How, how did that arise, and why is that so hard to combat all of a sudden? Well, as a pediatrician myself, and again, having uh, graduated from medical school in 1977, I, I have seen the history of this evolve. Uh, when I was a young physician, you know, we provided education about vaccine, just like we do today. You know, I spoke to my patients then, just like I do now. I explained to them the benefits of vaccine as opposed to the risk of these diseases and the very, very small risk that vaccine products pose to people who take them. Again, an exceedingly small risk and much safer than the disease. So, you know, I had this education and information for my patients uh, when I started out practicing. And now, all these years later, what I have really seen happen is largely with uh, I think more of the social media approach, I mean, granted, social media has not been around for 42 years, but it certainly has exploded over the last, well, let's say 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. but also in the uh, latter part of the 20th century, uh, there were some really, really uh, fraudulent, for lack of a better word, studies put out, one of them being by a physician uh, from England, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, that falsely, and I stress falsely, associated uh, the measles vaccine with autism. And this just really caught on. 
And even though that study has been debunked, that study was retracted by the Lancet, uh, that the Institute of Medicine has done a significant amount of research to combat the false information in that study, this information still continues to be put forth as factual, and, and it is not. The measles vaccine does not cause autism. Uh, associations such as Autism Speaks actually encourages parents to ensure that their children are up to date on their vaccines. So I think a, a very false narrative about vaccines and a reliance on non-vetted information, non-scientific information mm -hmm. uh, to really mislead the public. You know, parents care about their children. Uh, parents want what's best for their children. And certainly, I'm a pediatrician. I like children. I want, I want children to do well. But what I think has happened is, again, people receiving information that is, is not correct, is just simply not correct. And we should rely upon our health care providers, our persons that have studied this, you know, our pediatricians, our family physicians, our nurses, our pharmacists, you know, people that have done this kind of work, have studied this, and have looked at the data to ensure what's best for our children as well as for adults. So I think this movement has just caught on, and as a result of it, uh, we are seeing parents that refuse to vaccinate their children. We're also seeing parents that are hesitant to vaccinate, and it's incumbent upon us as, as healthcare providers to continue to provide factual information to ensure that people have the best information to make decisions for the health and well-being of their children as well as themselves. How frustrating is it, though, that one study based on junk science will not die, but all of these other studies that are based on good science will just be ignored because there's that one junk science paper out there that people latch onto? Just how frustrating is that as a person who is trying to um, fight these diseases and you get this this kind of thing thrown in your face as a, as a proof of you know why you're wrong how, how frustrating is that well for me as a physician I think uh, I have learned that if I become frustrated with something that it's a distraction to my being able to objectively present information to patients mm -hmm. so I think that's something that one learns through years of practice and learns through experience. But I have chosen to take the approach with my patients and with people who, who speak with me about this subject. I want to respectfully listen to what they have to say, and then I want to respectfully provide the information that my training and my background and my peers and people that, that I respect greatly, such as the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians, uh, the information from the Centers for Disease Control, as I said, through ACIP, I want to respectfully present people with the science behind this topic because if I become frustrated, if I become personally involved or even personally offended by something, it 
distracts me from my mission, and my mission is to ensure the best health care for children and adults, and my mission is to ensure that appropriate scientific information is provided so that people can be comfortable with their decisions for their families. So while I think it's always a temptation to go down the rabbit hole, uh, that's something that that I've worked very hard to personally uh, not only practice myself but also educate other physicians that I work with and and younger physicians and medical students and, uh, again, young residents uh, have some interaction with people still in training to remind people that our mission is to take care of the patients and our mission is to ensure that appropriate information is out there and to be able to rise above any personal concerns or personal frustrations in order to take care of the patients. It's obvious. You're a better person than I am because I would be be very tempted to give in to that frustration and just want to shake people by the lapels of their coats going, listen. Um, but I, I completely understand what you're saying, and um, I appreciate that there's people like you doing your thing instead of people like me doing your thing. <laughs> um, just just to end up, all right, so um, we are decidedly saying that Im- uh, immunizations of vaccines are a great thing, and so where can parents get affordable immunizations for their children? Well, certainly uh, we're very fortunate in Alabama that uh, Medicaid and also the CHIP program covers many children that are are lower-income children that that, uh, might not have insurance through their parents' or guardians' health care plans, and then obviously our private insurance. Uh, Really, the the ways to receive vaccination in Alabama is, first of all, if if you're insured uh, or if you have Medicaid or CHIP and you obviously have a private provider as a result of that, a family physician or a, a pediatrician, then get your vaccine at your physician's office. Uh, if if your plan for some reason does not cover that, uh, then certainly you can receive your childhood vaccinations through the Alabama Department of Public Health through our Vaccine for Children's Program, or VFC, which is actually a nationwide program uh, through the Centers for Disease Control. And again, we have VFC vaccine available, Vaccine for Children. That's actually what it's called. Uh, but also there are vaccines available through your private provider. Now, for adults, uh, certainly it's, an, it's very important to be aware that adults still need vaccines too. I think most people associate vaccines with children, mm-hmm. but we need to be up to date on our adults' vaccine. Uh, just for example, more recently uh, we've had hepatitis A uh, in uh, northern Alabama, and certainly certain populations need hepatitis A vaccine, but pharmacists now vaccinate. Uh, for certain uh, illnesses. So I think it's very important for adults to be aware that there are vaccines available through their local pharmacies. Not every pharmacy vaccinates, but many pharmacies do. So you really have the option of your private physician or your private clinic or through the health department and, again, for adults through your pharmacy that might be a vaccinator. Okay. Um, One other question that just came to me, and I may never get a chance to talk to you again, so I want to ask it now while I have the opportunity. A couple of years ago, when we had this Ebola scare, um, there was a huge push, I remember following in the news, a huge push of finding this vaccine for Ebola. Now, um, I think 
and I may be wrong, but I think there's a misconception of that the vaccine for Ebola would have helped somebody who was already infected with Ebola. That's not how vaccines work, and that's not how, am I correct in that? Well, it depends upon the vaccine, actually, uh, okay. for example, and just to digress a moment for Ebola to be aware of the, the viral hemorrhagic fever, the Ebola virus being uh, one of the viral hemorrhagic fevers, you know, primarily occur in certain parts of the world, and the Ebola outbreak a few years ago was, you know, primarily in, in Africa, in Liberia, Sierra Leone, you know, a couple of those countries over there. Uh, I actually had done some of my Ebola training at, uh, again, Fort Detrick, Maryland, before they moved the Ebola Containment Center over to the National Institute of Health a number of years ago. Uh, but again, to be aware that while a lot of studies are going on with uh, field trials for the Ebola uh, vaccine, you know, in that particular instance, uh, at least if a vaccine had been available, it probably would not have interfered with the natural course of the Ebola disease. But there are some vaccines, and let's just go back to MMR, for example. If the person is exposed to measles and they've never been vaccinated for measles and they're in an appropriate age group, which, you know, we might have to lower the age group in a, an outbreak situation. We might have to give measles vaccine to children six months of age and above. It's recommended one year of age and above for now. But if a person is exposed to measles, if they have never been vaccinated for measles, and if they take the measles vaccine within 72 hours of the exposure, they're very unlikely to contract measles. Another example is hepatitis A. If a person is exposed to hepatitis A, they've never been vaccinated for hepatitis A, and they take the hepatitis A vaccine actually within a couple of weeks, they're very unlikely to develop hepatitis A. So in some instances, vaccines, and we could go on with others, but time doesn't permit, in some instances, vaccine being given with a very short period of time during the incubation period of the disease can actually reduce the risk of the person developing the disease. So again, it depends on the disease. It depends on the vaccine. But it's you know, it's possible with some vaccines, not with others, but it's possible with some to actually interrupt the course of the incubation if the vaccine is given early enough during the incubation period. Okay, well, okay. well I'm glad to know that because that, that helps me put um, some plots of TV shows and movies in, in a better light then. I appreciate that. Yes, TV shows and movies uh, certainly have, uh, have done a lot to provide... Uh, I guess we might say interesting storylines for <laughs> uh, for vaccines, but not not always correct, unfortunately. Right, unfortunately. I remember that when I was a kid, the first time I learned that there was fiction in the world, I was kind of I was kind of crushed about that. But anyways, Dr. Landers, um, I greatly appreciate um, your time. I have monopolized far too much of it this afternoon, so I greatly appreciate you talking with me for the podcast. Um, I have learned quite a lot, and I hope our listeners have too. And um, I feel I feel really good about things with um, wonderful people such as yourself uh, on the front lines of, of our health. Well, thank you. You've been very kind. And, again, we certainly appreciate as the Alabama Department of Health the opportunity to uh, continue to 
uh, provide information to the general public, answer questions, and ensure that people have the most appropriate information to protect themselves and protect their health. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Landers, I greatly appreciate it, and I'm going to let you go, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.